morning, everybody. It is 11 a.m. on June 25th, 2021, on what might end up being a very exciting day for my family, but I'll comment more on that later. Um, this morning, I am joined by Dr. Harry Lever, and we are going to have a discussion today about latent obstruction or provocable obstruction in HCM. And we're going to tie that into the monthly message of exercise and fitness and understand a little bit better why it's important to know whether or not you're obstructed or non-obstructed and how to find out if you are actually obstructed. Good morning, Dr. Lever, and welcome back to the podcast. Good morning. Okay. So we've talked about a lot of things over this year already and in this podcast series, but what is provocable obstruction? Provocable obstruction is when um, with uh, typically exercise or uh, some type of activity, the mitral valve uh, hits the septum in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and causes uh, obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart. This occurs in about 35% of people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, that is to say, at rest, you don't have obstruction. And then when you exercise or do some type of activity, you can develop outflow tract obstruction. 35% of people have resting obstruction. And again, the provocables are 35 and about 30% have no outflow tract obstruction. So it's roughly about a third or so of the patients have provocable outflow tract obstruction. So let's dial back a little bit. Let me turn my volume down here a little bit. Um, let's dial back a little bit so those who are just kind of learning or can keep up with us. What is obstruction and what is being obstructed? I can show you a picture if we share. A... Absolutely. Visuals help, but we're going to need a narrative over it so that those who are only listening can get a good understanding as well. Let me, let me share the screen. Thank you. This uh, diagram shows what happens normally in a normal heart. This is the, this is the posterior mitral leaflet, the anterior mitral leaflet, the aortic valve, ventricular septum, posterior wall. And when the heart contracts, mitral leaflets come together and they close. So there's no leakage of the uh, blood backwards and then the blood goes out the aortic valve. In patients with hypertrophic uh, cardiomyopathy, we get what's called SAM or systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. This particular diagram is gonna show bileaflet SAM, but you can have uh, anterior leaflet SAM, you can have posterior leaflet SAM, uh, or as here, both leaflets are SAMing. And I'll show you what that looks like. Mitral valve comes up, it hits the septum, and some of it may leak backwards into the left atrium, and the blood is going then out the aortic valve. Now, um, in this is what happens in resting SAM. I don't have a diagram of provocable obstruction, but basically what happens in provocable obstruction is this, the, the, the leaflets move normally at rest and they don't come up and strike the septum as, as they do here at, uh, at rest. 
So that's yeah. bi-leaflet sand. And, and so what, what you imagine is, is that at rest in somebody who has provocable obstruction, the mitral valve does not come up enough to hit the septum and cause outflow tract obstruction. With exercise or doing something simple like standing up, the mitral valve, the left ventricular cavity shrinks. The mitral valve then tends to move closer to the septum and you may get outflow tract obstruction. And that happens with exercise. We try to provoke that with what's called a valsalva maneuver where people actually bear down and uh, uh, tighten their abdominal muscles. That also causes the left ventricle to shrink and, and it, and it uh, uh, can cause outflow tract obstruction. Uh, if you uh, are dehydrated, if it's a hot day and you're outside on a hot day and you haven't had any fluids, the left ventricular cavity shrinks and you can have obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart. So it's very important for people who have provocable obstruction in hot weather to remain well hydrated, because if you don't, you could theoretically get dizzy or even pass out. So it's important that people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy maintain a good state of hydration. So if somebody, they have non-obstructed HCM, right. but they've never had a stress echocardiogram by a center who knows how to assess such data, um, why should they consider getting a stress echo at a high volume center who has a protocol already established to identify outflow tract gradient? Because, because the, they will know how to uh, put somebody, typically we use a treadmill, put the patient on the treadmill, do a resting echo, lying down, typically was done that way. Then we'd stand the patient up, put them on the treadmill, have them exercise as much as they can do and see what happens. Some people will not develop obstruction and others will have resting obstruction. And then the type we're talking about here may have provocable obstruction with exercise. The other thing that we sometimes do, not often, but sometimes, is that if we cannot induce obstruction with exercise, we will feed the patient, which is a little unusual. A lot of people don't think about doing that, but in some cases, we actually feed the patient to take the blood um, into the stomach, which then takes blood away from the heart, which then causes it to shrink. The cavity gets smaller, and you can develop outflow tract obstruction after eating. Now, that also <laughs> brings up the point that if you're going to exercise and you know you have provocable obstruction, it's probably best not to eat before you exercise. But here we're trying to do a test to bring it out. And that's why we give people, we might feed them before we do the stress test. The way I look at that situation is patients and just people in general, if you know you're having a test, you want to study for the test. So you, you think you want to be your best self when in actuality you wanna be your average self or even your worst self so you can see how bad something can get. So you wanna to talk to your team about what you're gonna to do to prepare for this test. But if you get the perfect night of sleep and are hydrated perfectly and you don't eat beforehand, 
and you balance it all out, you're not going to see what's going to happen on that day that you're at the family picnic and you've had a little too much to eat and you try to run across a field to grab a ball for somebody. You're not going to know what that's going to be like if you study for the test. So talk to your team, decide whether or not you're going to eat before or not. You're going to take your meds before or not and figure out how you're going to go about doing this. Um, I think it's critically important for people to get what they need out of a test, not try to have their best result. That makes sense? Yep. Okay. The other thing that this does bring up is um, alcohol becomes a problem for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I encourage my patients not to drink any alcohol. That's whiskey, wine, or beer. Now, it also turns out you should know that a bottle of beer is worth a shot and a half of whiskey. So if you drink a whole bottle of beer, that's 45 cc's of hard alcohol. And we discourage patients from doing that because alcohol can also cause peripheral vasodilatation and cause you to have outflow tract obstruction. It can also cause heart rhythm disturbances. One in particular is atrial fibrillation. And that's why we, we discourage patients from drinking alcohol. Okay. So do we have any other slides today? Or is that the last I one? think that, that, I think those two are, that, okay. that gets the idea of the obstruction. Okay. So let's pivot the conversation to the topic of the month, which is exercise and activity. If somebody is unsure of their obstructive status, it may be harder for them to plan an exercise regimen that's appropriate for their heart and prepare for that exercise. So this first step is to do the stress echocardiogram with a knowledgeable center, find out what your provocable gradient is, if there is any at all. And then once somebody knows whether they're obstructed or non-obstructed, what exercise level are you comfortable in prescribing or discussing with your patients on average? Well, um, I'm, I'm, I believe in, um, I, I guess I'm a little more conservative now than some people. I, I tend to encourage walking. Um, I, uh, I discourage jogging, um, riding a bicycle, um, plus minus, you have to be careful when you ride that bike. If you, uh, you certainly don't wanna fall off if you get dizzy. But it all it comes down to basically um, uh, what you do on the stress test and what is your blood pressure response on that stress test. Uh, if you exercise uh, and you don't drop your blood pressure, don't get dizzy, don't have any heart rhythm disturbances, then I think uh, uh, you know you might be able to ride the bike or even swim in a pool because the advantage of swimming is you're not standing up. The water tends to be a little cooler on a hot day and you, the chances of passing out are not great. Now, of course, you should never swim in a swimming pool unless there's somebody else around. That goes for anybody, I believe, whether you have hypertrophic <laughs> cardiomyopathy or not. But, but um, the other thing is, I think it's worthwhile to note uh, what your heart rate does with exercise. Now you're gonna find that out on a treadmill, but there are some devices now that you can use that'll tell you with exercise what you're doing. And one of them is an Apple Watch. 
and uh, the Apple Watch will record your heart rhythm for about 30 seconds. So at any point through the exercise, you just tap the watch and it'll, it'll tell you what your heart rate is and it'll even show you your heart rhythm. And that's, that's important. Um, there is another device called an Alive Core device, which you, it, you can't do it uh, as you're exercising. You have to, be, you have to sit at a table and it, it, it's a little rectangle. You put two fingers on each side of it and that'll record uh, your heart rhythm if say you're feeling dizzy. The advantage of the Apple Watch though is you can do it right as you're exercising. And I think that that can be particularly helpful. They're more expensive than the Alive Core device, but they have the advantage of you can do it right as you're exercising. Yeah. Fitbit, excuse me, Fitbit technology has a similar uh, ability yeah. in terms of uh, reading right. out. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't, uh, the sense, it's the Fitbit sense that can do that, the charge for and that, and the other versions don't have the EKG. I'm actually getting one soon. So what is it? So that's a new, that's a newer one. And I wasn't familiar with that. It's Fitbit sense. Um, and, and that does offer the EKG as well. Uh, so there are wearable technologies that can be used. So ha having an exercise regimen, whether you're including yoga, Tai Chi, light weights, uh, mild aerobic activity, these are all pretty safe for people with HCM, right? Right. Okay. Things that are much more intense, you know, like CrossFit training and things on that level, that's an individualized decision and you really need to talk that out with your physician before you embark on something that's very intense. It doesn't mean that it's a definite no for everybody, but for the majority, it's probably not the best pathway to go. And you want to really work with a team to figure out what's right for your heart. And I'm sure over the years, you've had patients pushing the envelope, wanting to do more and more. And what is your, what is your comment to them about finding finding balance? Well, I try to it, I try to discourage them from doing you know vigorous excessive exercise. Uh, the what the other thing is lifting weights. I think that you uh, got to be very careful when you're weightlifting because if you were to lift very heavy weights, then you're doing you're bearing down, doing that valsalva maneuver when you lift the weight, and that can uh, cause you to become dizzy. So we, you know, and cause people to sweat profusely. So you gotta, you know, I, I really discourage my patients from weightlifting. We don't want to do anything that would really cause the, the heart to hypertrophy anymore. And that's why I discourage them from doing heavy weightlifting. You know, maybe 10 or 15 pounds is okay, but certainly not 100 or 200 pounds of weight. I would never tell people to do that. You said something a bit provocative there, and that is you don't want anything to add to hypertrophy. Right. Can somebody with HCM develop left ventricular hypertrophy that's not related to their HCM? Well, it might be possible. And you don't, you certainly don't want to put any extra strain on that heart. And I, you know, um, the other interesting thing to think about is if if you're looking at somebody going through puberty, you don't wanna, when, when the, 
person is growing, you don't want to do anything to uh, stimulate that heart to hypertrophy any more than it, you know, than it otherwise might. We don't know all of the circumstances, but but certainly if that heart is going to hypertrophy, that's when it's would tend to happen more, and you don't want to exacerbate that, make it worse. So I don't know why I'm having an echo today. So the physiologic stress on the heart can add to degrees of hypertrophy. It doesn't cause HCM, but if you have HCM and you're adding bulk, that's not a good thing. Well, as a matter of fact, there are a group of patients who maybe we're not 100% sure whether they have physiologic hypertrophy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy tend to be a, a borderline to a little bit more than borderline hypertrophy. And those patients, we might tell them to, if the heart is looking thicker, we might tell them for six months to lay off exercise, you know, vigorous exercise and see if that hypertrophy goes away. I've had a few patients where that's happened, where it actually got less. And that is the telltale sign athlete's heart. That's right. So athlete's heart, for those of you who might not have heard that term before, or were told that you have an athletic heart, but you actually have HCM, athlete's heart is the physiologic change of the heart muscle that makes it look a little thicker due to conditioning. It's right. actually quite rare. Um, and if you are a rower or a marathon runner or somebody who's an elitely trained athlete four to five times a week, doing massive exercise, these are the people who tend to have true athlete's heart. If you're 40 years old and you're a weekend warrior, it's probably not athlete's heart. <laughs> Would that be right, Dr. Lever? Right, right. Okay. So we want to encourage people to stay active because we know activity is good for the rest of the body. We don't want to develop hypertension, obesity, um, COPD, we, we want to keep the lungs moving, we want to keep the body moving, and we want to stay healthy so we don't have all these other downstream effects, coronary artery disease, etc. So walking you like, light bike riding with a helmet, obviously, right. swimming in, with somebody else, obviously there, always. Um, unfortunately, this morning I just heard about a, a drowning one of my staff members witnessed uh, on vacation seven-year-old, very, very, very tragic and sad. So our condolences to that family. So always swim with somebody else. Um, but in terms of exercise, is there anything else that you think is wise or helpful for somebody with HCM, any particular type of exercise? No, I think that those are the kind that I think are the safest. And, uh, you know, the other thing to think about is um, going up steep hills. If you're going up a steep hill, you might actually, you might really push it depending on, you know, um, on, on uh, how steep that hill is. And you might find yourself, you might find yourself really working hard. On the other hand, at some point, you're gonna have to come back down the hill. So you're, you know, it's, it's not all bad, but you just wanna sort of be, be aware of that. The other thing that I think is helpful in terms of, how much exercise you do. And it's also with these devices like a Fitbit, there are portions of the app that allow you to record what you eat every day. And you can, you write down what you eat. It'll tell you how many calories you take in. And then by the number of steps or how you're moving, typically, you know, the, 
the uh, uh, walking will give you a more accurate uh, idea of how much you're, 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 you're burning. Because when you ride a bike, as I have found out, the, um, you, and you're pedaling, you know, you intermittently coast, you pedal, you don't really get an idea of, of how, much, how much distance you're doing because it doesn't really count the steps like it does when you walk. If you if you might get a you you might ride a bicycle a longer distance than you might walk, but it doesn't give you as much of an ac accurate idea of how distance you're moving because because your feet aren't moving when you're pedaling or you're, you're you're coasting, so it doesn't really realize how 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 much you've moved. So that's a small point, but. Well, you can on some of them. There are um, settings for what activity you're doing during that time. So it monitors your heart rate with that activity and can calculate the calorie burn more effectively. But you know, you gotta you gotta set the little triggers. And right, right. I gotta be honest, I like my fit my Fitbit charge two better than my charge four because the screen is easier to use for tracking activity, um, which is why I'm going to the sense as soon as I get myself to the store to buy one. So um, there is great wearable technology. Um, so the concept of, you know, how many steps a day, you know, you look at some data, it'll say 10,000 steps a day is where we should all try to be. Right. Um, I know not everybody with HCM is up to 10,000 steps. Um, I've always tried to use the theory that get the Fitbit, don't change your activity, see what you do. See what you do. I can tell you before transplant, I had figured out ways to only walk about 1500 steps a day because that's all I had the energy for. Um, and when you're only walking 1500 steps a day, it's hard to build yourself back up to 10,000 steps. So wherever you start, start with a number and try to add something small like 200 steps a day. It might be two laps around your yard or a walk to the mailbox or something simple but give yourself time to build yourself up to a number that you can maintain and handle. Um, so my, my target number on work, work days is 8,500 steps. I try to do 8,500 steps a day, Monday through Friday, and then I add my other steps in on the weekend and I try to do 15 to 20,000 on the weekend. Uh, that's post-transplant, not pre-transplant. So get yourself some realistic measures. Um, the, the food logs are really, really, really helpful. Um, most of them are pretty intuitive. Like if you always eat the same things, you can put them in there and you can just tap a little button and it takes you five minutes a day to track your food. Um, it's a little addictive <laughs> and uh, you can't cheat. There are no cheats here. It's calories in, calories out. Um, so what else do we need people to know? Hydration is important. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, caffeine. Yes or no? I try, I try to discourage caffeine. You know, maybe one cup won't hurt you, but sometimes one becomes two, becomes three, becomes five. You know, you don't want to overdo it. So I would, I would, I'd try to go without the caffeine if you could. Okay. But if you drink coffee and you don't have any negative consequence from it, you don't feel palpitations, it doesn't make you feel worse. Is there any scientific proof that it's bad for you in HCM? No, probably. It's not as bad as alcohol, but, but 
you know, I, I just, you know, anything in excess is no good for you for anybody. No, no. But, you know, five cups of coffee is definitely not good. Although there right. was data out today that coffee is good for your liver. I don't know what that data is. And in six months, there might be an article that comes out that says coffee is bad for your liver. So I, I don't know, but today coffee is good for your liver. So have a cup of coffee and be good to your liver. All right, we're gonna open up to Q&A in a little bit. So if you have any questions, now would be a really good time to put them in the uh, comment feature and I will read them in in just a second. So start typing. Okay, so over the, oh! I am a great aunt. 1119. Oh, wow. ah. <laughs> 11, 11 pounds? No, like four minutes ago. Oh, 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 I see. Hold on a second, everybody. I have to go check this text message out. Uh, now I get to find out a name. My nephew, John, and his wife, Kim, just had their first baby. So I'm a little excited right now. I didn't expect it to happen live on a podcast. So baby, whenever you're old enough to view this, this is when your aunt found out that you came. Great aunt, actually. Oh my goodness. My sister's a grandmother. Happy day. Very happy day. Oh boy. <laughs> Sorry about that, Harry. Didn't expect to get completely emotional here. All right, back to exercise and HCM. All right. So we know obstruction is important. Let's pivot from obstructed exercise. What about non-obstructed exercise? A non-compliant left ventricle, a stiff one. Are there any tips that we can give people who have non-obstructive with restrictive physiology or just some diastolic dysfunction on exercise? I think it's, it's, I think it's pretty much the same. And, and, and certainly if, if you've had symptoms of heart failure, shortness of breath with activity, or you know you're you're really not feeling well, I would not do a lot of exercise. You just have to know how you're feeling. And yeah. if you're particularly if you're on a lot of medicines for your heart, I would not do vigorous exercise. Not to say I'd sit around and do nothing, but you got to be a little more aware of if you're you know, if you're needing vasodilators or something like that. To, feel better. You don't want to, you don't really want to push it hard. I did a lot of stretching and, you know, more like Tai Chi type movements just to kind of keep the muscles moving and oxygenated right. to the best that I could. I lost a lot of tone in my legs at that point in time and it took a long time to get that back and get the strength in your legs. The other thing also, it might be worthwhile to, uh, you get these little devices you put on your finger and see what your oxygenation is with exercise. I don't think I don't think that that's necessary for the typical patient who's feeling okay. But if you're having symptoms, it might be worthwhile to measure that. So, a movement is good. B, extreme exercise only with consult with a knowledgeable physician who can help guide you. This concept of shared decision-making doesn't mean everybody gets to do exactly what they want. And we've had this discussion on the podcast before about, you know, maybe realistically looking at expectations and changing up um, maybe some of the activities that you're doing to be something that makes you happy 
as well as makes your body happy. And I would refer you back to Seth Poland and the podcast we did with Seth and Dr. Marin about, um, you know, just ch changing up, you know, his hockey behavior. And he still can play hockey, but he's doing it differently with his HCM. Uh, so we want you to be careful. Uh, we want you to be active. We want you to be happy. We want you to be mentally fit. We want you to be physically fit, but we want you to protect that HCM heart. Um, hydration key, taking medications as directed key, um, not stressing too much, not bearing down, um, but keeping yourself moving. It's good. Like anybody who thinks that, you know, I, I was in a conversation a couple of weeks ago that some people don't think you should do anything with HCM that you should sit in a chair. Um, I've been in this game for 25 plus years as a patient advocate, 37, eight years, something like that with HCM. Never did I hear don't do anything or don't do some things, but not sit down and just get fat and get coronary artery disease and diabetes. No, 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 no. We want you active. Really important that you stay active and fit. What other messages do you have to people about exercise, Harry? I think that's... I think that's pretty much it. I think that also be aware if when you're exercising, you suddenly aren't feeling well, don't ignore it. And, you know, um, that's, that's why uh, it's helpful maybe to have that uh, device that'll tell you what your heart rhythm is so that you can see what's going on. And it's, uh, you know, also be aware of if you're starting to get notice dizziness or Make sure that some that you have a blood pressure cuff at home that you can check your blood pressure. That's another thing that you can do. Now, obviously, you're out, if you're out exercising, that's not going to happen. But but if you're not, you know, you go out, you exercise, you come back, you're not quite feeling right. Check your blood pressure because what may have happened is you could have dehydrated yourself. If you've got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you have provocable obstruction. You're dehydrated. You may have obstructed. And that can hang around until you get rehydrated. So it's worthwhile to measure that blood pressure and have an idea of what's going on and differentiate a low blood pressure from you know, low blood pressure versus an arrhythmia. So you can, you can pretty much get an idea of what's going on if you have the proper devices. You, know, you check your blood pressure and check your rhythm, check your heart rate. So I'm gonna pick this a little bit to, you know, we talked about studying for the test early on. And I've always been concerned about things that I used to think. And I hear people saying the same things. I'm wearing a halter monitor. I can't do that. Or I have an event monitor on. I don't want to do anything strenuous. Uh, I, I actually think it's quite the opposite. That's when you push your limits a little bit to see what happens when you push. Um, that gives us the opportunity to say, okay, this is this is you doing the most that you can do and look, everything was okay or no, it wasn't okay. So I think it's critically important that people don't study for the test and that they talk to their team about, okay, how far can I push it with this? I know some people who've gone on, you know, hikes with halter monitors and have bike rides that are really long and they really push it and they see what's safe or what isn't safe for them. So I would say, don't study for the test, check with your team, push the limits a little bit and see what bad things happen or not. So there could be a lot of reassurance in this testing as well. Um, okay, so the questions are quiet today, people. You're normally very questiony. 
and I don't have a lot of questions today. Uh, we've been talking about exercise a bit, so I'm hoping that the lack of questions means we're, we're clearing the air for people. Uh, between the podcast and the Big Hearted Warrior Tour, we're discussing this a great deal, and I hope that we're adding people to the list of those who want to be active as much as possible. Obviously, if you have outflow track obstruction and you become symptomatic with exercise, that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Um, and we hope that you, you know, work with your team to uh, address, you know, the symptoms related to obstruction. Any other parting words today, Harry? Anything on the vaccine front or COVID front that you want to discuss? Well, we've got to be careful uh, and get make sure you're vaccinated. Uh, there's uh, this this new um, virus called the Delta virus. And, it, and it's uh, it's particularly contagious. It um, um, it's very interesting. About three weeks or a month ago, uh, there were about 500 cases or so in, in Great Britain, and now it's pretty much taken over in Great Britain. And now it's and it's about 20% of the new cases in this country. Fortunately. Uh, we're still lucky the vaccines are still working, but we can't take it. But what we're finding is that people who aren't taking the vaccine with this new variant are getting sicker than had been the case. And there are more hospitalizations and there is no excuse for not taking the vaccine. Now, I will say there have been a few cases of people that have had the Moderna vaccine as well as the Pfizer vaccine that have gotten what's called myocarditis where there's an inflammation of the heart muscle. It seems not to be making people very sick. It's easily treatable with what we call non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory drugs. And the FDA has come out with a statement saying that the risks of this myocarditis are nowhere near what they are if you do not take the vaccine. So there, from everybody, unless you've had a very bad reaction to some vaccine in the past where you get a very bad allergic reaction, that's probably the only contraindication to it. And I would say there's no excuse for people not getting this vaccine. I mean, this is, uh, um, as a matter of fact, I, it was on the news last night that there are 10 states in this country where 50% of the new cases are this Delta virus. Oh, it's not every state, it's, you know, and, and certainly the, the states that are down south where people for lots of reasons haven't been getting the vaccine, mainly politics, um, there's no excuse for not getting the vaccine now. And they say, people are saying, Dr. Walensky from the CDC has said that this vaccine will definitely save your life. And particularly if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or any kind of heart disease, this is not something that you wanna get. You do not wanna get an inflammatory response in your coronary arteries or, or your lungs. Certainly if somebody with heart disease doesn't wanna know about that at all and they definitely should be vaccinated. So there is no excuse at all. And it's- I have a question and a curiosity. So we know that young people 
who may have been infected by the COVID virus may be asymptomatic. What do you think the likelihood is that some of these young people who after they got the vaccine are found to have myocarditis, was it the vaccine necessarily or did they maybe have asymptomatic COVID sometime prior and still have- uh, Sometimes you don't know, you may not know. Right. But, um, but certainly uh, if, you, if it looks like you have an inflammatory response, be it the vaccination or the, the disease itself, the treatment is pretty much the same okay. in terms of anti-inflammatory agents. And I was talking to an old friend the other day and I said, hey, did you get vaccinated yet? And she said, oh no, I don't want my DNA to change. Can the vaccine alter the human DNA in a negative way? Not that we know of. And again, uh, uh, we have got to get rid of this disease. It's interfering with our lives too much. We have lost 600,000 people in this country from it. And I'm still a believer uh, that uh, if you're around a lot of people, you pr probably should be wearing a mask. Uh, the other unfortunate thing is that uh, it's always hard to know who got the vaccination because some people decided that it wasn't politically correct to ask people if they had the vaccination. And I think that was a very, very bad mistake. Knowledge is power. power. And in this problem now, we need as much power as we can get to get past this problem. And it's 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 getting old, and we've got to we've got to stop this nonsense and understand that it's scientists and doctors that understand this problem, not politicians. Amen. Um, I'm going to pivot again because we have another two or three minutes that we can chat, and then you have an appointment, and so do I. Um, so drug quality, um, we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, and we know that metropolol has been a problem uh, coming from particular factories, particularly in India and China, and we've been concerned about its quality. And a new company came in and became the authorized generic for Topril, um, and the company's called New American Therapeutics. And we have some updates from them that rather than only being available through Eagle Pharmacy, that New American Therapeutics Metropolol is now available at most pharmacies, including CVS and Walgreens, I think. Was that correct? Right, but you gotta, gotta ask for it and insist on it. And don't let them tell you they can't get it. Their wholesaler doesn't carry it. No, no, You've got, you, know, you tell them, find it, or I'll find a drugstore that will. And you also got to be careful that if you do get it, that next month they don't change it on you. So it needs to look the same. Full disclosure, HCMA is not getting any funding or no. political or financial ties to New American Therapeutics. They signed a contract with AstraZeneca. They are having the drug. It's actually manufactured by AstraZeneca in Sweden and they're the distributor for the United States as of now. That's where you can get true Topril. 
not just metropolol, it's true toporal XL, the extended release molecule works as it's supposed to. It doesn't dissolve too fast. It doesn't drop out of your system. It's going to give you consistent coverage. Um, we will be working more on this topic in the future. And I thank Dr. Lever for his passion and his advocacy in ensuring that we are getting high quality drugs and there's more work to come in this area. Stay tuned for more. Now, one other tip. Um, there is a program called drugs.com and under uh, drugs.com is a pill identifier. You can look at your tablet, you go to the pill identifier and you enter in the code that is on the tablet and you can identify the manufacturer if there's any question at all, or it looks like they've changed something or a few drugstores out there don't always put the manufacturer on the label. And if you, if you use the, the pill identifier, it'll tell you what it is. Another note, if any of your medication is crumbling and it's a long acting drug, if you notice it's crumbling, you need to bring it back to your pharmacy immediately and ask for a different batch because time release drugs should not crumble because part of the time release mechanism is in how the, the drug actually dissolves in your body. If it's crumbling in the bottle, in the bottle, it's not staying whole in your body and it's not going to work properly. And it's all, it's most likely not the authorized generic. Yeah. I mean, bad things can happen to good batch, you know, to good drugs. And, you know, you just want to keep an eye on that. But if you get a brand that is crumbling, it's not going to work for you. And, and as a general rule for drugs, if, you're taking something and you're feeling all right and things are going all right, don't let them change the manufacturer. That's another potential problem, no matter what you're treating. One of the, one of the there's two, made, two diseases in particular that you have to worry about. One is a seizure disorder. You do not let anybody ever change your drug if you have a seizure disorder. And thyroid disease. If you're hypothyroid, you don't want somebody changing the manufacturer if you've become stabilized on the stuff. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm going to leave with two announcements for the day. Number one, join me back here at two o'clock for a second podcast of the day where I will be meeting with Dr. Um, Marty Marin and Dr. Mike. Robich, Robach, uh, who is the new cardiac surgeon at Tufts, who is training with uh, Hassan Rastegard right now, and um, will be taking over that program when Dr. Rastegard retires, not immediately, but in, in the coming future. And the next announcement is my great nephew has a name, and it is Xander Lawrence Titus. And Lawrence was my dad. So, um, I'm going to go cry now for a little while before my next podcast. And maybe uh, later this afternoon, I get to hold Xander. And I'm over the moon. So, Harry, thank you for sharing this important day yep. with me. Yep. Um, and uh, tomorrow would have been my mom's birthday. So this is an early birthday present, I guess, for my mom to have another great grandchild. So um, I hope she's watching. Thank you all for joining us today. See us later on. And maybe I'll have more pictures of Xander. <laughs> all right, Harry, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. 
For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.